right. Well, today, church, we are continuing in our sermon series in the book of Exodus that we have titled Wooed in the Wilderness. So I would invite you to open your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 4, verses 1 through 17. Young disciples, if you have grabbed your sermon guides, which are right over here on the side table, you're going to need to write down that passage, Exodus chapter 4, verses 1 through 17. That's on page 47 if you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs. Today I'm going to be talking about someone else, all right? This points to Christ as it does every week. He is our ultimate someone else, and so I want to talk about him as we continue to look at the calling of Moses. Here are two applications that I think flow from today's passage. First, trust the God who uses the ordinary to do the extraordinary. And second, obey the God who uses the disciplinary to do the legendary. With that said, please stand with me to honor the reading of God's word. If you're not able to stand, please stand with us in your hearts. Again, today's passage is Exodus chapter 4, verses 1 through 17, but I'll only be reading verses 10 through 13 at this time. Church, hear the word of the Lord. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Church, the Lord has spoken to us. Let's respond together. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, four weeks ago, we received the news that after a three-year battle with pancreatic cancer, the famous former pastor, Timothy Keller, had died. Now, I don't know if his ministry had any impact on you, but here's one way that it has that you may not know about. Keller was the most influential preacher on your preacher, me, Each week at Antioch, it's not that you get the intelligence or the apologetics of Tim Keller's preaching, but you do get the structure. And if you grew up in a church like me, then you probably experienced sermons that were structured in this sort of way. This is what the Bible says. This is what you must do. Now, go do it. And if you don't know Christ, repent and believe. Come back next week, and we'll tell you what you need to go and do. But Keller's structural approach to preaching was reflective of the gospel itself. It went something like this. This is what the Bible says, and this is what you must do. But because of sin, you can't. So Christ did it for you. Now go trust and obey through him. That is a profoundly different way to point people to Jesus because it makes the gospel central not just for the unbeliever, but for the believer. As Keller put it, the gospel is not just the ABCs of Christianity, but it is the A to Z of Christianity. 
So now you know one way that Keller's influence is so great that it impacts you each week even after his passing. But what you may not know is how he came about that influence. The story goes that on his way to becoming this iconic Christian figure in New York City, he actually chose to be passed over twice. He had only pastored a small church in rural Virginia, but his denomination saw potential in him. And yet, when they came knocking, he tried to get two others to go in his place and be the church planter there instead. Please send somebody else. But when he finally gave in to God's calling, well, the rest is history. And so as we look to today's passage, we meet another person of almost unmatched influence whose calling was inaugurated with the response, please send somebody else. It is Moses, whom we saw last week encountering God in a burning bush, being sent as a man on behalf of God to deliver his people, and then reacting basically with, I'm not your guy. And yet... Y'all, that was just the first two rounds of this interaction between Moses and Yahweh. Today, three more times, Moses will have excuses for rejecting God's call. And this is seemingly like a proposal gone bad. Think of it like this. God's saying, I want to be with you, and I'll give you my name, and I promise that we'll make that journey all the way there and all the way back to here together. But that's not enough. Moses has cold feet. And so let's see what happens to him and what it has to say to us. The first thing being, trust, young disciples, you need that word for your guide. Trust the God who uses the ordinary to do the extraordinary. After Yahweh has told Moses to go with this news to the elders of Israel, we read this in verse 1. Then Moses answered, But behold, They will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. Now I pause here because I want to make one observation. You know what it seems like the most deeply rooted source of Moses' insecurity is here? Rejection. Back in chapter 2, when Moses as a young man sought to be Israel's leader, if you remember, we read that one person responded, How? Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And so in other words, this person is saying, who do you think you are? And so it's not so much the guilt of having killed an Egyptian that puts Moses on the run. He's not in fear of his life specifically as much as it's the shame of rejection from the people of God. As they say, ain't no hurt like church hurt. Right? Like the world, and a pagan world can hurt you, yes. But there's something uniquely painful about rejection that happens in the context of the local church. Among people who are not yet fully redeemed from their sin. We hurt each other. And shame is not something that we easily outrun. Like, I mean, Moses is still being controlled by these words 40 years later. You see, we all have something called a shame attendant, an inner voice, that once we become aware of it, we realize it often speaks louder and more influentially than the voice of the Holy Spirit. And you can sometimes trace it back to shameful words that were spoken to you somewhere in your life, probably by someone close to you that you deeply respect, admire, maybe even a family member. 
they go, and we've already heard them once this morning. Who do you think you are? What is wrong with you? Why can't you be more like so-and-so? But you know what the antidote to shame is? Anybody? Vulnerability. Risk. Stepping into the light. And this is what God is inviting. And yet Moses in his shame is anticipating another painful rejection. They will not listen to me, Lord. They will say, the Lord has not spoken to you. And so Moses cannot take the risk of another rejection. Anybody identify with that today? Paralyzed by what might happen. What does God do here? Look at this. Does he reject him and add to the shame? No. He liked that. He says, let me show, let me show you what I do with ordinary things. Verse 2. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? And I brought this staff up here because I want to act this out, at least for the sake of the kiddos. This has got to be one of the most comical scenes in all of the Bible. So let's just, you know, not read it, but feel it, see it. What is that in your hand? Moses said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground. And what happened? It became a... And what did Moses do? What you and I would do. You know, get away from this. It's probably a cobra, right? So this is happening somewhere in Egypt. Oh, that's right. Somebody brought them, though. There's a box under the seat somewhere that has them in there. I have been to a snake handling church, and I'll tell you that story another time if you want. Okay? They did handle. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. Now, that took a measure of faith. I don't know that I would have done that. I'd be ready to go to Egypt, you know what I'm saying, before I go pick up this snake again. But Moses does it, and what happens? Turns back into a staff in his hand. So that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Now, this is the first of three miraculous signs that Yahweh gives to Moses as proof. Young disciples, you need to write down this first one, that he turns a staff into a snake and then back into a staff. And now we're going to get into some of the symbolism of each one of these signs, but the main thing that I want you to see about them is their ordinary nature. Yahweh could give Moses a spaceship that vaporizes people, couldn't he? He could give him something like Thor's hammer that comes from another planet forged of a star that does all kinds of crazy lightning things. I'm sure people would be convinced real quick that something supernatural is happening. But instead, he uses the most ordinary thing that Moses has, an old stick. (laughs) This one's fancier than probably what Moses had. And so what is an old stick against the greatest superpower the world has ever seen? So powerful that their kings were considered gods. And yeah, check this out. Anybody remember what was the symbol for Egyptian royal authority? I guess. A snake. Look at what sat at the brow of Pharaoh's headdress. Even the headdress itself looks like the opening neck of a cobra. Where else in Scripture do we come across a snake? The Garden of Eden. 
Genesis chapter 3, the crafty serpent who seeks to take Yahweh's place by deceiving his people. Now, go to the beginning of Exodus and notice what Pharaoh says there about Yahweh's people. He says, come, let us deal shrewdly with them. In other words, let's be crafty with this people. Let's take advantage of them to our own ends. So you see that Pharaoh is just another form of the serpent seeking to take the place of Yahweh. So think about what this sign given to Moses is saying. Through ordinary, old, broken down Moses, the one true God is going to take this evil serpent by the tail and have complete control over him. Mm. There's something there. And not only that, but verse 6, young disciples, here's the second miracle. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And what he had put his hand inside his cloak, and when he had took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. So once again, note the use of something very ordinary, a hand, a cloak. Through ordinary, old, broken down Moses, Yahweh not only has the power to take a conquered people and make them free, but he has the power to take an unclean people and make them clean. Just like that. And it's so it's, it, you got to see, it's not just out of something that God wants here for his people. It's into something greater. And not only that, but verse 9. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, and we take that to mean Moses probably had to use the third one, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. Now, if you're familiar with the story of Exodus, then you know that this sign points us to the plagues that Yahweh will soon send upon Egypt. The first of which is turning the Nile River into blood. But a layer deeper than that, it points us to Yahweh's power over the very life source of Egyptian power. The Nile. But a layer deeper than that, it points us to the very life source of all human life, which is what? Blood. And that's why this sign is greater and ultimately convincing. If all else fails, it's written in blood. Think back to the story in Genesis 4 where Cain killed his brother Abel. Y'all remember this? The first two sons born of Adam and Eve. Cain kills his brother Abel. Do you remember what the Lord said in that moment? He said, what have you done, Cain? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. You see, there is something about the spilled blood of his child that especially moves the heart of God. And so this sign points us to the action that Yahweh is ready to take on behalf of his people. And remember, all this is in response to what? It's in response to Moses' insecurity. See, this is not for convincing Egypt. In fact, Pharaoh is not going to be impressed with these things at all. This is for convincing 
Israel, the people of God. It's given as a loving response to Moses' shame. And if Yahweh would do that for him, won't he do it for you? Maybe the attendant in your head speaking crafty words of shame actually isn't from God at all. Maybe he wants you to take that shame by the tail and listen as he speaks a better word over you. Maybe he wants you to trust him as the God who uses the ordinary to do the extraordinary. And if you would do that, then perhaps you are well prepared to do this. Obey, young disciples, you need that word. Obey the God who uses the disciplinary to do the legendary. Beginning in verse 10, we encounter Moses' fourth negative response to God's calling. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Now what exactly Moses is referring to here? We're not sure. It could be that he stuttered or that his Hebrew was a little rusty. Maybe his Egyptian was a little rusty or that his international diplomacy was a bit rusty or that he was like Paul in the New Testament who was strong as a writer but made fun of as a speaker. Regardless, I think there are two underlying things here that I want you to see. One is the assumption that you must be a gifted speaker in order to be used by God. That if you can't impress and persuade people with eloquent words, then you're incompetent. And the New Testament literally tells us that the opposite is true. If you preach, if you speak with eloquent words, it empties the gospel of its power. Because we speak as ordinary people with broken words and thoughts that maybe don't always connect themselves in beautiful ways. Here's the second underlying thing. Here, I think what Moses is saying means that our incompetence is actually maybe God's incompetence. You see Moses saying this here? Look at this. Moses is saying, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. In other words, your presence, as beautiful and wonderful as it is, Lord, hasn't changed a thing about me. See what he's doing there? And notice Moses, he doesn't even use God's newly revealed name that reflects his unchanging, gracious nature, his power, his very being itself. Instead, he uses the impersonal name, which can be translated just master, controller, Or even owner. And so the effect here, if you read between the lines, is like Moses is saying, I'm not enough, Lord, and you made me this way. Mm. Anybody do this besides me? Anybody else do this besides me? Lord, you have given me the command, but not the competency. It's like you want me to look stupid to be shamed. And Yahweh responds, who do you think you are? What is wrong with you? Why can't you be more like Abraham, Enoch, Abel? No, that is not our God. He does not respond in this way. 
Look at verse 11. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? It is, not, is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. And over and over we see this in the New Testament. Don't sweat it on the day that you've got to stand before somebody and give an account, give a defense of why you have this hope in Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God will give you the words to say in that moment. But you know what the posture of shame is? If you could think of like a, a, a physical bodily posture that would reflect shame, what does it look like to you? Anybody? Yeah, I see people dropping their heads. Just, it's down. You're, you're down here. And it's an inability to get past. I am not. Incompetent is what I am. Insufficient. Not enough. But I want you to watch what Yahweh does here in the Hebrew with the word anochai, I. Okay? Moses has said, I, anochai, am not eloquent. Where is Moses, I, when he says that? It's down here. It's down here. It's looking at himself and his incompetency. And yet the Lord responds, Who has made man's mouth? Is it not I, Anochai, Yahweh. Okay, see the difference here? Now, therefore, go and I, Anochai, will be with your mouth. Where is Yahweh's I? Up here, baby. Ain't down here, it's up here. And so, to me, it's the simple imagery of a child up on his father's shoulders. Where does a child up on his father's shoulders look? He looks forward. He can see everything. He's so high, so tall, so strong. And if and when he ever does look down, what does he see when he looks down? He sees his father. And again, that is what Yahweh is inviting Moses into and inviting us to. But Moses comes back in verse 13 with his fifth and final response. The conclusion on the matter. He says what? Oh my Lord. Please send someone else. Let me see if I can translate this effectively. Something like this. No. That happened in your house any? Never. No excuse given. Just a man with the stubbornness to stand before the greatest revelation of God to that point in history and say straight up, no. No doubt all the deep layers of shame and hurt are at play here, but its final and ultimate expression is this, disobedience that comes from a lack of faith. And it brings me back to one of last week's questions. Why was Moses not consumed? Not the bush. I ain't worried about the bush. Why was Moses, this sinful man, this broken man, not consumed by the presence of the angel of the Lord? And our only answer can be, again, because of Yahweh's great love. For his compassions never fail. We read in verse 14. Not that the Lord struck him down immediately. 
but that he was angry. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron your brother, the Levite? I know he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. You see, Yahweh was prepared to give Moses a name above all names. But because he would not humble himself and become obedient, he had to share the glory with another his brother Aaron. And so this is not just a concession of the Lord. It is a demotion of Moses. He does miss out on something here. This is not judgment, however, because judgment precludes you from being obedient anymore. It's said and done. and You're out of God's presence. Over. No, no. This is not judgment. What is it then? Discipline. Discipline is different from judgment. As one definition puts it, young disciples, you'll need to write this down. Discipline is the practice of training someone to obey. That's why discipline, done in love, is a good thing. Moses will still have to be obedient to God's calling. See that? God's not giving up on him. He's not taking no for an answer. Only now he will do it with the stinging paddle of knowing what he missed out on. Look at this final word on the matter. The conclusion of this epic scene, verse 17, Yahweh says, And take your staff, take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. It's kind of like this. Off you go. You are sent. (laughs) (laughs) And yet I want to bring to your attention two things. Yes, we do end on the stinging note of Yahweh's disciplinary action. But look at what comes of it. First of all, sure, Moses now has to share the glory. But guess what else Moses gets to share? The burden. In giving Moses Aaron... Yahweh is giving Moses community. Moses and Aaron will go on to be one of the most legendary pairs in the Old Testament. And it's like, sure, there are going to be some hard moments as there are in community. But you cannot tell me that Moses didn't appreciate having someone to lean on while he led the most stubborn people in the world through 40 years in wilderness. In fact, when the Israelites finally build a tabernacle where Yahweh comes to dwell with them, Guess who serves as the high priest over it? It's not Moses. He doesn't have to do that. It's Aaron. What a grace. Do you see the grace in the discipline? And yet there's a second thing that comes from Yahweh's discipline here. As Moses shovels off, the Lord basically says, Hey, don't forget your what? Your staff. Yes, Moses is relegated to carry into the most technologically advanced civilization on the planet an old desert stick. And yet that old desert stick will go on to be legendary. It's what he'll use to do the signs. It's what he'll raise to part the Red Sea. 
It's what he'll wield to win a war and to supply water in the desert. And later, it is perhaps the same staff that miraculously blossoms and produces almonds that is then put on display where for the people of God to remember for generations in the tabernacle. It's exactly what Moses will need. What a grace in the discipline. And that's what I'm getting at here. In chapters 3 and 4, we've been experiencing the revelation of who God is. We have said that from beginning to end, He is unchangeably, unrestrainedly, unquestionably gracious. And that is even the case for His discipline toward His people. Perhaps during the course of this sermon... Some of you have remembered the stinging paddle of discipline that came when you dug in your heels and you crossed your arms and you said no to the living God. I mean, if even the greats like Moses and Tim Keller have said, please send someone else, then surely we've all done it. Maybe this morning, maybe during this sermon, maybe even in this moment. And indeed, there is shame in our disobedience. Who are we to say no to the one who is very being itself? Not only that, but to command that he do otherwise. That's what Moses is doing in this scene, is he is putting himself in the place of God. Send someone else, Yahweh, not me. This is what we call sin. And yet behold how gracious this one who is very being itself is. Does Yahweh respond with the judgment that we deserve? No. Listen to what he says to Moses years later as Moses nears the end of his life. A life, by the way, that will conclude with more disciplinary action. He says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them. Unlike you, Moses, he shall speak to them all that I command him. He will not refuse me. This is more than a successor. This can't just be Joshua who comes after Moses. In the grand scheme of things, this is referring to the ultimate someone else. Someone else who would come completely ordinary, but who would do the extraordinary. Someone else to whom the world would say, who do you think you are? What is wrong with you? Why can't you be like more, more like other rabbis? And yet rather than withdrawing in shame, he pressed into our shame with vulnerability and risk. And risk it was. He came to the most stubborn people in the world as the greatest revelation of Yahweh in history. And even though we responded with a collective, no, he still kept coming. Of course, I'm speaking about Jesus Christ. And friends, when you hear of him up on a cross, you are hearing God's proposal to you. I want to be with you. And I want to give you my name. And I promise that we'll make the journey there and back to here together. 
And so the question for you today, believer, unbeliever, is how do you respond to that? This is not Jesus receiving a little discipline on your behalf in order to like get you back into good vibes with God because you've kind of been a little bit weird. You know about him, but you're not really close to him. You know some things have not been so great in your life, but you know, you'd like to get back into good vibes. And so Jesus does a little something for you. No, this is Jesus taking the full judgment for your disobedience and my disobedience and all of it in the history of the world in order to get you into a life of loving to obey Yahweh. Not just saying, all right, I got to do it because it's in the Bible and now I'm a Christian. No. You say, I want to wake up in the morning and say, what do you want me to do today, Lord? I know there's resistance in my heart and shame that holds me down, but I actually would like to serve you, to follow you, to live for you this day. You see, unlike Moses, Jesus did humble himself and become obedient, even to the point of death. This was what the New Testament describes as Jesus' exodus. The Father saying, Behold, I am sending you to lead people from all nations out of sin and death. And Jesus replies, No, he doesn't do that. His reply is, Here am I. Send me. And he goes. And therefore he was raised from the dead. And he was given the name above all names. A name in which no one deserves to share the glory. This is how the God takes the old servant by the tail and crushes his head through Jesus Christ. And yet here's how gracious Yahweh is. He will share the glory with those who do not deserve it. If you lift up your eye off of yourself and you place it upon him. Not what you have done for him, but what he has done for you. He will, if you'll do that, turn you into someone else. Someone like him. And he will pick you up and put you on his shoulders. Now and forever so that when you inevitably look down, what you see is his head, which was glad to wear a crown of thorns on your behalf. This is what he does with ordinary things. And so what does this A to Z gospel practically mean for you today? Believer, unbeliever. Well, in the words of the old hymn, Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. When your shame is leading you into excuses, take the risk of trusting that you are covered by that which moves the heart of God most. The spilled blood of his son. And it is that blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And that's what will allow you to trust and obey through Jesus. Because where you failed to do so, he did on your behalf. So you receive the Holy Spirit and be empowered to go. And trust and obey.
and where your stubbornness has led you into God's discipline, remember that it is simply training you to obey. And that it puts you in good company, church. Your losses and mistakes aren't just what make you share the glory. They are what make you share the burden. Here is where your shame attendant can come to die. As you struggle, obey the invitation to depend more on God's community, not less. Not to withdraw in your shame and say, I'm going to carry this burden by myself. No, no. But to press in to the community that God has given so that your shame and the light and beauty of that community can come to die. And you can live free to trust and obey just as we do every week when we come to this table. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and after blessing it, he broke it. He gave it to his disciples. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he took a cup of wine and after blessing it, he gave it to his disciples. He said, this marks the new covenant and the shedding of my blood. And as often as you eat this bread and you drink from this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he returns. Church, today we are going to announce something, and I want to invite you to announce it with me if it will go up on the screen. Today we are announcing, because of Jesus Christ, God is not ashamed to be called our Father. Thanks be to God. Our tradition here at Antioch is to come forward together to break off a piece of bread and to dip it into the juice and to take it with a broken heart, remembering what Christ has done for you and what he promises to do upon his guaranteed return. If you're a follower of Jesus, I would invite you to come forward and do that in just a moment, not so that you can have shame heaped upon you, but so that this can be a place where shame comes to die. Because you're reminded of how much your Father loves you if you're here today and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, then rather than coming forward and participating in this, I would encourage you to come to Jesus himself. He has made himself available to you. You don't have to do anything other than turn away from a life of trying to measure up to God and instead say, I just want you to save me because I've recognized that only you can. And I want you to save me in such a way that I would want to trust you and obey. For the rest of my life. There will be people in the back to pray with anyone who has any need. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you. Thank you so much for this good news that is the A to Z of Christianity. Thank you that you don't just get us out of our sin and then tell us to make the best of the rest of our lives. But thank you that you want to also make us clean in such a way that every part of our lives comes under your authority such that we would trust you and obey you out of a deep desire to do so. God, we thank you for going to the extent of sending your own son to die in our place, 
I pray, Lord, that that would not be a source of shame to us unless we reject it altogether in our unbelief. I pray today instead that it would be a source of love, of assurance, the kind that lifts us up and puts us on your shoulders once again, as we all need. Lord, let the people of God respond today together, being reminded of these things, building one another up, their shame coming to die a little bit more until the day that we see you face to face, and shame will no longer ever be at play. And I pray for those in our midst who have not yet put their complete trust in what you have done on their behalf. Lord, that today and even in this moment might be influential for them taking a step toward you, to put their trust in you, to know your heart, and to be saved. Lord, have your way in this moment. Would you pray in Jesus' name? Amen.